welcome to the fourth episode of Barovian Bedlam, uh, the podcast dedicated to Bowery FC and football in furnace. Um, I know it's been a bit of a while since the last episode, um, but there's been that much going on, um, not just with, with Barrow and football in general and the whole uh, COVID-19 thing. Um, there's just been no chance to get this episode out. Um, add to that the fact that um, the interview was over two hours long and I wanted to try and do it as best justice as I could to still split it up into those one hour segments. So I've decided to um, cut the interview into two parts. Um, so my guest today is Peter McDonnell, um, obviously Barrow FC goalkeeper through the 80s into the 90s, um, also played for uh, Berry, Oldham, Neverfield and Liverpool more famously. Um, and I wanted to do it justice. So this first episode is all about starting out, um, getting picked up by Berry, spending a season there. Um, going on to Liverpool and then how the move to Oldham came about um, and then the second episode is going to be about Oldham, Barrow um, and everything else. Um, I said two one hour um, episodes. Um, not to go into too much depth about the start of the new season, obviously we're two games in, um, two games still undefeated, uh, lost both from penalties um, but against high league opposition and putting in two great performances. Um what more can be said? I know in the last, uh, I think it was episode two, I was a bit concerned about the appointment of um, David Dunn. If it happened, obviously it was before he was officially announced. Um, but I was quite confident in the judgment of um, Mr Hornby and his um, committee. Um, and so far, so good. He's doing a decent job. We've picked up some very, very good signings, some very astute signings. Um, they've got a lot of potential. Um it seems to have gone down a similar route in terms of style of player um, and system as Mr. Effort did. Um, so, yeah, um, it's good. It's, it, it looks like it's, the momentum's carried forward. Um, and it's two very disciplined performances. I know it's nil-nil, but um, high league opponents, Saturday should tell a little bit more. Uh, with the Stevenage game, we should be in a position to um, have a decent idea of where we stand, really. Um, I know it's a bit weird with no fans allowed in the ground and um, no one's really sure what they are allowed and aren't allowed to do, but um, at least we've got the ability to be able to watch these games on TV, which is better than than nothing, um, I suppose. So um, I'm not going to beat about the bush too much uh, for this first part. Um, like I say, it's all about him starting out in football, um, getting picked up by Berry and then all the way through to the end of his Liverpool days. Um, and then the second part will all be the, the Barrow bit, with a little bit of Oldham chucked in there for, for good measure. Um, so I hope you enjoy. So, first and foremost, thank you very much for agreeing to speak to me. Um, I kind of sent out a bit of, on a bit of a whim, trying to get, um, a contact for you from the Westmoreland FA, so greatly appreciative of them passing my message on uh, to be able to get hold of you. So we'll start at the very, very beginning. Um, what was it that got you interested in football? Um, well, I think like all young lads, you start, you play football at school and at primary school and what have you. I didn't actually start playing organised football until I was 15. I never played any junior football at all. Um, so I started playing my first lot of football when I was 15 years old at Nunthorpe, Nunthorpe Corinthians. Um, they were short one day, 
and Frank Hall, who was captain of the third team, then came round rounding up lads on the on the estate. And I was one of six lads that were rounded up on the day and dragged off to play a game of football. And I sort of stuck at it from there. So uh, my grateful thanks to Frank Hall for, for getting me involved that day. And that was at the age of 15? I was 15, yes. Yes, that was playing in the North Lancashire League. Right. So you've gone from... What, what year would that have been from at the age of 15? That would be 1968. So within nine years, you've gone from your first ever game to a European Cup final. Um, well, yes, really, yes, yes. Quite a, quite a leap. <laughs> a bit of a whirlwind, shall we say, without any... Without yeah, not, most, most people start when they're kind of... Obviously, we've been kicking about and stuff, but most people start with what would have been like under-12s, then under-14s, 16s, picked up somewhere, carried away some down the country somewhere else playing for a club and then worked their way up to it. And it was kind of a, a path, but to be playing your first game of football at 15 and then nine years later... Yeah, yeah, we'd no, we'd no junior football in Montfort at that time, um, so it was a matter of waiting until uh, you managed to get into the uh, into the senior sides. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> so obviously, who, who who were the kind of inspirations growing up there? And what team did you support? I supported Tottenham as a, as a young lad. Uh, we had a thing at primary school many years ago um, for the nineteen sixty two cup final, Tottenham and Burnley. Half of the class were, we were doing some sort of project, I can't remember what it was, but half the class were divided to be Burnley fans and the other half were Tottenham fans. I was in the Tottenham half and I've been a Tottenham fan ever since. <laughs> right, some way of picking the team. So who were the, the kind of players that, that stood out from growing up then? Um, well, I remember a lot of the players in the Tottenham side. I mean, obviously, Jimmy Greaves was a big hero, uh, the goal scorer extraordinaire. Um, but I remember the team from the 61 and 62 Cup Finals quite well. Um, a bit of a strange thing, really. And then, obviously, there was the uh, World Cup in 66. I remember, vividly remember watching that. There was about five or six of us went around to uh, one of the lads' houses and we all watched it. Um, not everybody had televisions at that time, so we were lucky that one of the lads did. Um, but I remember watching the game and going out and playing football in, on the green in front of the houses at, uh, at full time. So is it always a, a goalkeeper that you, you had your eyes on or did you kind of try your hand at not, playing at no, not, not really. I think, uh, I think all lads start playing when you just score goals. I think that's the big thing, isn't it? We all set off and think that we're going to be uh, the next great goal scorer. Um, I probably started playing as a goalkeeper maybe 11, 12 years old. Uh, I'm not really sure why. I just did and just found that I had sort of a, a little ability to do it and kept on at it from there. Right. So obviously, 15 when you made your first senior appearance for Milnthorpe, what, how did the, the move up to what was Neverfield is now obviously Kendall Town, how did that come about? Um, well, I, I started off in the third team at Milnthorpe and within sort of 12 months, I was playing in the first team. Uh, and that was more of a political thing within the club. Uh, but I ended up playing at 16 in the first team. And so I was getting good experience in the North Lancashire League then as a 16-year-old. Uh, and I was sort of 18 when I got a knock on the door one evening from the then manager of uh, what was Netherfield, uh, a lad called Brian Park. He came down and asked me if I'd like to come and uh, move to, to, Kent, uh, to Netherfield. Um, 
So I, I, I jumped at the chances. Uh, everybody wants to try and improve themselves, and I thought, yeah, I'll go for that. Um, so from getting a knock on the door on sometime in the middle of the week, I ended up playing at Chorley on the Saturday for Netherfield's first team. Well, moving quite quick. And then obviously, yeah. by 1973, 1974 season, you're off to Bury. Uh, yeah, well, I, I had a couple of years, at, uh, just over two years at, at Netherfield. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it and gained a lot of experience and met somebody at Netherfield who was massive on my career in, in the long run, really. And that was Brian Arrowsmith. Brian was playing at Netherfield at the time, uh, and he was a good mentor to me. Um, he used to pick me up and take me to training because I couldn't drive. Um, so he was really good for me that way. But also, Brian, when I got the opportunity to go and play professional football at Bury, I just decided that I was going to get married and buy a house. And I wasn't quite sure whether I should make that move into professional football. And it was Brian, after talking to Brian on these journeys of picking me up and taking me back from training and games, that uh, he sort of persuaded me that it would be a good idea. He said, what can you lose? He says, if everything goes well, great. If it doesn't, come back and you pick up where you left off. So Brian was a great influence for me. And uh, he remained a very, very good friend right up until uh, a couple of weeks I saw him before he died. So it was very sad to, to hear of Brian dying. So, 1973, like we said, 1973-1974 um, was when you joined Bury, and that was the season that they got promoted from the fourth division, what was what is now Division Two, League Two, um, yeah. the old fourth division. Um, did you find yourself? Because I think you only made a handful of appearances at Bury. What, That's right. Yeah, were um, they the only club looking at the time, or was there other options, or? Um, not that I'm aware of, but I don't think I had any other options. I just thought, so I've had this offer to go and play at Bury, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to double my wages, uh, so off I went. Um, I found it difficult to, to make the transition from uh, a part-time player to a full-time player. I found the training very difficult to start with, uh, even though I thought I was fit when I was playing in the field. Uh, when it comes to full-time football, you realise just how much fitness you lacked. Um, so it took me a long time to settle. I say a long time, I was only at Berry for nine months. Um, but it took me a while to settle. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I played, I only actually played one game at Berry in the first team. And that was the, uh, the last game of the season uh, at Scunthorpe. Uh, and it was after that game against Scunthorpe that I was invited to go to, to Liverpool. Um, for a tour that they had to Germany. Um, so I went over to Germany, to Dusseldorf, with the, uh, with the Liverpool under-21 side, as it was then, and played in this uh, competition, and we won the competition. Uh, came back home thinking, well, that's it. Nothing will come of it. Uh, but lo and behold, I got a phone call sometime in that summer to, uh, to move permanently to Liverpool, which uh, was just absolute whirlwind from uh, from playing at Netherfield to sort of 10, 11 months later to be signing at Liverpool and uh, it took a bit of uh, taking in really. So until that last game of the season when you got invited to it, was there any kind of, were you aware that there were scouts or 
I mean, how did it work? It's nine months and one one football league appearance. Doesn't kind of usually lend itself to move into what were league champions. They'd won the FA Cup. They won the UEFA Cup, I think, the year before. Yeah, they had, yes. Uh, no, I had no idea whatsoever. Um, I was just going out and playing in the reserves right through the uh, through the season that I was there at Berry. You just go out, play your games. You would no sort of thought about moving anywhere else. All you wanted to do was improve and get into the first team at Berry. Um, but having spoken to people since, there were scouts at all reserve games. They were all, all the clubs were looking to pick up players wherever they possibly could. Um, and if they could pick up players for um, sort of younger players at very little transfer fees, well, that was a, a feather in their cap rather than having to pay big money out for players um, in the transfer market. So, uh, yeah, it came as a surprise, but uh, they had watched me. And, uh, yeah, I, I really didn't know how to accept it at first. Uh, you just get on with it and you move and that was great so I'd read on, on the internet somewhere while I was doing research that it was signed by Bill Shankly who was he the one who was scouting you and obviously Bob Paisley took over that summer that's right yes I mean Bill Shankly was strictly speaking still the manager when I signed um, but within a week he resigned um, so I do have quite an effect on some people obviously <laughs> um, <laughs> And Bob Paisley is taking over as manager. So uh, for the four years that I was at Liverpool, Bob Paisley was actually my manager. Um, really, I, I can't really say that Bill Shankly was my manager, although it was a, a wonderful experience meeting him and uh, getting to chat to him. Yeah, I mean, it's that Liverpool boot room that's so famous you hear about, the kind of conveyor belt that they had of managers. Um, I don't think it would have made much difference because it was such a tight thing between Bill Shankly and Bob Paisley anyways as number two he would have probably been aware he was leaving and, and taking over within a week and kind of going through with signings anyway. Did you get much time to spend much time with Bill Shankly? Not really, because I think he made a conscious decision to stay away from the training ground once he had resigned, um, just to let Bob Paisley get on with things. Um, he probably felt... and I. It's been said since that he, he felt as though he would have overshadowed the things that Bob Paisley wanted to do. Uh, and he didn't want to do that. He just wanted Bob to go on and manage the team and do things his way. Uh, and I think you've got to uh, admire him for that because it must have been a, a difficult decision to retire. It must have been difficult to stay away from the training ground, even though there was an open invitation for him to go there whenever he wanted to. Um, but he did stay away and he, and he let Bob Paisley get on with things, with, as you say, with his, uh, with his boot room people um, to do things as they saw fit. And it wasn't a bad way of doing things either. <laughs> no, I'm just looking now. I mean, when you've gone from Berry, obviously, in the back, what was the thought process? He's trying to find the right way to word this. But obviously, Ray Clements is at Liverpool. He's there from... 67 till 80 something I think he was at Liverpool um, so going in there and at the time substitute goalkeepers weren't a thing um, you would have been playing reserve team football um, was the thought in the back of your head that at some point you're going to dislodge him you're going to get your chance what was the thought before, before you went there because obviously such a, a great goalkeeper is already there yeah, I, I think when you get the opportunity to move there, you don't necessarily look at the bigger picture as to 
the goalkeeper that they've got and whether you were going to be the, the next, his successor or whatever. You just move because it's such a big club and you know that you're going to uh, le learn and improve yourself. Um, when you get there, yeah, Ray Clements was a, an absolute total down-to-earth person that I worked with for four years and he was brilliant and he was always there to help you. Um, you always had that in the back of your mind that you wanted to play in the first team uh, and you worked as hard as you possibly could to get there. But there comes a time when you think, hang on a minute, this isn't going to happen. You realise that. Um, you're not going to dislodge the English goalkeeper. Um, so you make your mind up. What you're going to do is listen, learn and move on. And I think it was probably a couple of years into my four years, I realised that. Uh, and then that's what you do. You listen, you learn, and hopefully when the time is right, you move on. So uh, that's, that's why it was never really disappointing. If it had been a goalkeeper that had been somebody I felt I could have dislodged, maybe I'd have been frustrated there. But when I saw how good Ray Clements was at close quarters, how professional he was, I was never, ever disappointed when the teams went up on a Friday morning and he was in the first team and I was in the second team. I was never disappointed. My goal then was to get into the second team every single week. Um, so just off the spin of that, and it's not really Liverpool related, but obviously Peter Shilton was about the same era. So it's kind of testament to how good he was because he was keeping Clements out of that England side or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was, when I was at Liverpool, I was biased. I thought Ray Clements was the best without a shadow of a doubt, because uh, I saw how hard he worked uh, and just how professional he was in everything that he did. I think once I left Liverpool and I looked at Shilton and Clements as two goalkeepers, probably Shilton was the better of the two goalkeepers. Um, I think he just had something about him, a little bit more of an, of an aura on the international stage. Ray Clements had that at Liverpool on the club stage, but Shilton had that on the international stage. Uh, and I think, with hindsight, I think that Peter Shilton was probably slightly the better goal. Uh, and with hindsight, the England managers have shown that themselves in the fact that he got 125 caps and I think Ray got 60, 70 caps. Uh, 61. So yeah. Ray Clements, yeah, 61. 61, yeah. yeah. I mean, not a bad return, 61 caps. Um, but yeah, I think Peter Shilton was probably just the better of the two goalkeepers. Just to go complete, because I've got notes and I've got a kind of a line of that I want to try and stick to, but I'm going completely off topic because this usually happens because you'll say something and it'll trigger me. I think, actually, I want to know that because um, I'm quite selfish on the questions asked on this because it's things I want to know about and then hopefully someone else will want to listen to. Um, just top five goalkeepers then, personally, for yourself. Oh, now then. Um, well, Shelton and Clement have got to be the, uh, two of the top goalkeepers, the, the top two goalkeepers for me. Um, I thought they were just absolutely outstanding. Um, I think, are, are you talking now worldwide or just English or just British goalkeepers? Worldwide, we'll go worldwide. Worldwide. I think you've got to include Dino's off in that, just on his longevity. 
uh, and the fact that they won things, Italy won things with him playing. I think Oliver Kahn was an exceptional goalkeeper, the German. I think he had something that was a little bit... Uh, scary. Yeah, yeah, well, it was scary, yes. He was, he was scary in his actions, he was scary in the way he looked as well. But uh, he, he, was a, he was a top-class, world-class goalkeeper. He really was. Um, after that, I think there was probably um, quite a number of other goalkeepers that were on a bit of a, a par. Um, we don't tend to, to think of continental goalkeepers as being sort of the ultimate, the bee's knees. We tend to think of them as a, a bit of an also around, really. But they're not. They have been and still are some very, very good continental goalkeepers. Um, I think Pete, um, Peter Schmeichel was absolutely top class. And he also, the same as I thought about Schill, he had an aura about him as well. He had that invincible aura about him. Um, it was as if he didn't believe he was ever going to be beaten. And forward didn't believe they were ever going to beat him. Uh, so I think Schmeichel was up there as well with, uh, with the best of them, without a doubt. What do you make of current goalkeepers? And again, I'm going completely off my topic and my timeline I've got, but we're on the subject of it. So you've got your kind of how your goalkeepers progressed from the 60s and the 70s. Um, where it was all about shot stopping um, and then it moved into the 90s where they introduced the back pass rule which is at the time looks a bit weird but ever since it's you can't imagine football without it now because it it speeds the game up it stops a lot of time wasting and and teams used to kill games off with it Um, so all of a sudden goalkeepers had to be okay with the feet but now you look at like Alisson at Liverpool you look at um, the Manchester City goalkeeper as well and in their own right, they could play outfield because they're that good with the ball at the feet. And it seems to have evolved now to a an outfield player who can use his hands as opposed to a, a specialist goalkeeper. I think that's very true, yes. I think uh, that, that sums it up perfectly. They are outfield players that are good with the hands. Um, you have to be nowadays. Um, you only have to look at the way that uh, Guardiola, when he came into City, got rid of Joe Hart and brought in Edison. Um, well, he brought in Claudio Bravo first, and then him. Um, yeah, the, it, it's a totally different world now. You, you have to be able to use your feet. Uh, you have to be able to pass. It, no longer do you get the ball in your hands and you just hoof it upfield and you hope your centre forward is going to get a touch on and somebody will pick up the pieces. Goalkeepers now pass the ball 60, 70 yards to their teammates. Um, it's something that we never did. Um, but now, if you can't do that, you will not progress as a goalkeeper at the top class clubs at all. Um, it's, it's quite scary to see it nowadays, to see how it has evolved. But yeah, they are outfield players at that good hands. What would coaching consist of when you were at Liverpool? <laughs> um, did they worry you too much with the fitness side of it as a goalkeeper? Or was it more specialist and you're handling or was it not even that intense? It wasn't even that. It wasn't even that. I can count on two hands the number of days you actually did any um, goalkeeping coaching in the four years I was at Liverpool. Right. The problem from my point of view was Ray Clements was natural. He was an absolute natural athlete. 
Um, he knew what he needed as a goalkeeper, and he did a little. We, we used to do little bits of shooting drills on Thursdays, but you would never class it as um, coaching. You would class it more as shooting drills for the forwards, and you were there to try and stop the ball going in there. And so we didn't do a lot of coaching. We weren't we weren't coached. Um, I don't think there was a lot of goalkeeping coaching around at that time. I don't think many teams around had goalkeeping coaches as they do now. Um, my first coaching, I would be probably 31, 32 years old when I got, first got coached by anybody as a goalkeeper. Other than that, you picked it up yourself as you went along and you watched people and you copied people and that was all, but we didn't have coaching as such. Now, that might come as a bit of a surprise to a lot of people for a team like Liverpool that had a, an international world-class goalkeeper, uh, but he wasn't really doing any coaching. He wasn't getting coached at all. It's crazy because you look at it now and you think, I mean, back in that Liverpool team, you'd have had your, your manager, so correct me if I'm wrong, you've got your manager, you would have had an assistant, coaches after that, you've got your physio. Was there a coach? Was there? Uh, well, Liverpool had they had Bob Pace as a manager. Yeah. They had Joe Fagan as his assistant manager. You had Ronnie Moran as the coach, and that was it. You had then you got Roy Evans who was the reserve team manager, and you had a couple of guys, Tom Saunders and John Benison, who looked after the A team and the B team, and that was it. And the three of them, uh, Ronnie Moran, who was sort of the coach for the first team, he was also the physio. So there was only the three of them there. Now, you, you look at the benches at some of the games nowadays, and it's 15, 20 of them there. Um, there was three people there at Liverpool. Right, because I say you, nowadays you've got your seven subs, which takes up enough room as it is, but there's, there's more subs now than there used to be officials, yeah. if you will. But you've got analysts, you've got fitness coaches, you've got goalkeeper coaches, you've got specialist defence attack. Yeah, you've got dietitians, you've everything. Um, then we had, Liverpool had three people. Which three, just, three very good people at the night as well. Three very good people. Three people yeah. that all went on to manage the club uh, and were all extremely knowledgeable about football. And obviously Roy Evans as well, who went on to manage. Roy as well, yes. Yeah, Roy, Roy was a... I mean, Roy was only about 25, I think, in 1974 when he was made reserve team manager. Um, so he gave up playing uh, to become the reserve team manager, which was obviously uh, a very good move for him in the long term. Um, but he was very knowledgeable, 25-year-old was Roy, uh, and get, commanded a lot of respect from the players. Uh, he really did. He obviously got ribbed a little bit, moving from one side of the fence to the other. But uh, it was in a very nice way and it was in a very respectful way. Uh, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange boot room, but uh, certainly they would have had to have built an extension nowadays to get all the people in, wouldn't they? So in terms of um, that reserve team that you played in at Liverpool, who was there in there, like yourself, that wound to, to big things, but just not at Liverpool? Was there other... Um, Let's think who there was now. Um, there, was a lad, there was a lad called Colin Irwin played, a big centre-half. Colin, Colin never played in the first team at Liverpool, I don't think. But he, he did play a lot of games. He moved on to Swansea. He went, when Toshak went to Swansea, he took him with him. Played a lot of games at Swansea, did Colin Irwin. 
a very good centre-half. Um, I know Jimmy Case played a lot for Liverpool, but he also played a lot at Southampton as well when, uh, when he moved from Liverpool. Um, there's not many players actually um, moved on to bigger, better things. There was a lot that moved on into league football. There was a lad called Max Thompson went on to play at Blackpool. Um, uh, there was a lad called... Uh, oh, I've forgotten his name now, Huey. Um, he went on to play at Plymouth. Not many of them went on to play first division football. Not many at all. Liverpool had a very good way of making sure that uh, players progressed into the first team at Liverpool or they just weren't good enough and therefore they probably weren't good enough for other first division teams either. Right. Quite cutthroat then. Oh, very cutthroat, I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, you, just, yeah. you probably don't realise it at the time when you're there, but uh, it's only when you look back afterwards you realise that uh, you were there to serve Liverpool and if you once you haven't got a purpose there well they'll get rid of you and replace you but then that's football all through now isn't it yeah yeah they get they use what they want from you and then that's it gone it's very very business like um, very much so. very much so. just looking at um, I mean this sums it up really with the competition at the club I've, I've got a list of players that you played with just during your first season when you were there um so this would be 74, 75, I think. Is that yeah. right? Um, yeah. So, obviously, keeping yourself out was Ray Clemens. Yeah. England goalkeeper. Um, you've got Emlyn Hughes, who's captain. Yeah, and and um, captain plays for England. Phil Neal, obviously, yeah. did great things at Liverpool. Tommy Smith, Phil Thompson, yeah. Ian Callaghan, mm-hmm. Jimmy Case, yeah. Steve Highway, Terry McDermott, Kevin Keegan, John Toshak. And that's just during your first season. Yeah, yeah, and there's, yeah. There's people I've missed off that as well, um, just to kind of shorten yeah. it down a little bit. But and then others that come later on in your career, you've got Sammy Lee, uh, Alan Hansen was there during your last season, Graham Soonis joined as well during your last season. Um, yeah, it's little no wonder that some of these people from the reserve teams were nowhere to be seen when you've got that kind of quality in the side. And like I said, yeah. there's people I've missed off that. Well, Kennedy Alvarez, you've messed up. <laughs> well, there you go. There was Kennedy Alvarez, there was Ray Kennedy, there was Terry McDermott. Well, Ray Kennedy and Terry McDermott played the best part of a season in the reserves until they got indoctrinated into the Liverpool way of doing things. And uh, once they got into that Liverpool way of doing things, they progressed into the first team. But until they were there, they were reserve team players. And they both went on to be international players. No, it's it's crackers the the depth and the strength that they had because because squads were a thing then. You look at squads now that your first team is twenty five man deep, whereas then it was you you probably had fifteen players maybe, but thirteen of them would be first team and then the other three would be good reserve team players. Yeah, because they're not getting I used. Think, I think seventy six season when they won the league, I think they used thirteen players. Mm. Wouldn't happen now. No, not at all. 13 players to win the league. There's no, um, no resting players for cup games or anything like that. Everybody wanted to play every game. Yeah, that's that's a crazy thing to think of, actually. Uh, out of that list that we've got then, that you've played with, and obviously you mentioned like Dalglish, Keegan, Sunus, Hansen, um, Thompson, Ellen Hughes, Phil Neal. Who's the, who's the best player that you played with? Who's the one who impressed you the most, Liverpool? Um, I mean... 
everybody's going to see Kenny Dalglish. I mean, he was he was an outstanding talent. Um, but I think from very early on, it was obvious that Alan Hansen was going to be a top class player. Um, I just had that one season with him in '78, um, but you could tell from day one that he oozed class and he was always going to be an absolute top class, world class player. Uh, and that's how it turned out to be. So he was, you know, he was a good player. Ian Callahan was a really good player in the sense that he just gave you the same performance week after week after week after week. Um, there weren't massive highs, there weren't lows. It was just one steady performance, seven, eight out of ten, week after week after week. And a lot of people overlooked that. Uh, a lot of people overlooked the fact that he was a winger in his early days. And he turned out into be one of the best midfield players in the country. Um, so yeah, some really good players that uh, I was fortunate enough to play with and to watch play on a regular basis. Do you think many of them would be able to play to that level now with all the extras that go on? Because obviously you've got your strict diets, you've got your strict nutritionists and things like that, and it was a little bit lax back then with. There was, I don't know if it happened at Liverpool, but there's drinking cultures at other clubs. Um, do you think that there's many of them on that list that would, would have been good enough to play now? Obviously, you've got your better facilities, better balls, better surfaces, better everything. Yeah, everything is better in that respect. Um, I think the vast majority of them would. I think the real top-class top players, the likes of, uh, of Dalgleish and Hansen, Sunas, uh, and I would include Ian Callaghan in that as well, they would adapt to this to the football nowadays without a shadow of a doubt. Um, quality will always come through, and they absolutely used quality. Uh, yeah, there might be one or two other players that might find it a bit more of a struggle, um, but the, the really top-class players would come through and, uh, and succeed nowadays, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. So moving on to um, that European Cup season, um, which is obviously 60, 76, sorry, 76, 77. Um, like you said, they won the league, 75, 76. Um, we're just using 13 players in the squad. They only won the league by a single point from Ipswich and Manchester City that season. That's how tight it was between the top three, just one point. Um, obviously, a lot of people think Man City haven't been successful until 2009, but obviously it's not the case with them pushing a good Liverpool side all the way then. Um, just focusing on that um, European Cup run, do you think there was a standout moment that you maybe thought that we're going to go on and win this? Um, I'm not sure there was really. There was always a, there was always a feeling that um, they couldn't do well in European games. Um, there was nobody that they were particularly feared of or anything like that. They, they just thought, well, whoever we draw, we'll beat them. Um, they had some tricky games in that, uh, in that run. Uh, they really did. Um, but they always had that ability and that thought that they would win games. I'm not sure there was one particular moment. Um, I do think they were... I wouldn't say fortunate, but they didn't get particularly tough draws. If you look at some of the teams that they played en route to the final, 
I'm not sure that they were the most difficult European opponents that they could have had. Yeah, I've got the I've got the list in front of me. If if you can't remember, they've got the Northern, Northern Irish side Crusaders in the first. Crusaders, yeah. The, the, yeah. the most difficult thing about the Crusaders game was the fact that it was such a dangerous place to go at that time. Yeah, Northern Ireland. So they, the, we all flew in on the day, had an army escort to the game, played the game, army escort back to the airport and flew out after the game, and that was it. Uh, it was quite scary, was that, in many ways. I, don't think, uh, I think it brought home just how difficult the situation in Northern Ireland was at that time. Did they have substitute goalkeepers in all the European games? Yes. Was it right the way yeah. through? Yeah. yeah well, five, you... well, you had five subs. I don't know whether one had to be a goalkeeper. Which is sense. Five but they did have a goalkeeper. I was, yeah. I was looking for that substitute goalkeeper in all of those games, yeah. What was um, Turkey like then? Because obviously you said Northern Ireland was hostile at the time for political reasons. Um, obviously, Turkey's quite renowned for being a difficult place to go to. And I know you played Trabs on Spa um, when you lost lost the first leg one nil. Yeah, that, that wasn't so much uh, a hostile place to go. The game, I mean, the crowd were quite volatile, they were quite vocal, but they, I, I wouldn't have called it a hostile place. To Turkey. The difficult thing with Turkey was Trabs on at that time. Trabs on at that time it was the end of the earth. So you flew into Istanbul and then you had to fly on from Istanbul to Trabzon. So it was a hell of a journey getting there. So it was a tiring time getting there, tiring getting home. Um, but the actual game, the pitch was difficult. Um, the ball was very difficult. I know a lot of players complained about the ball after the game. Um, but they were probably quite happy at the end of the game only to have lost one bill. Uh, they just felt that in the second leg they would win the second leg, um, but they were they were quite happy to get away with just a one 0 defeat in that game. Right. With hindsight, they didn't go into it with that attitude, but with hindsight, they thought, yeah, maybe not a bad result after all. Right, because obviously that started off um, didn't have the best of form away from home. Because obviously won the home like three nil, win three one aggregate, yeah. and then you're drawn against St Etienne, um, who had lost in the final the year before. Yeah. Um, and again, you go out there, lose 1-0 in the first game. With them, they were one of the best sides in Europe at the time. They were a good side. They were a very, very good side. Uh, that that's a very, very good player. Um, they had a uh, great big Argentinian centre-back. who was... Well, he was an animal. And he... Uh, and he knew he could get away with things at that time. And he did. Um, it, that was a, a difficult place. It was a very noisy place for Suzettian at the time. Um, it was a very difficult game. Very difficult game for them. And again, they came away with that 1-0 defeat. Probably looking back on it, they'll think that that was a good result again. Um, yeah, not travelling too well in Europe. Uh, it was the home game that was... Yeah, when you asked about a particular turning point, maybe the home game against Zetian was a turning point. Um, when at 2-1, it looked as though Liverpool were going to go out on the away goals route. Um, and that was when uh, the old super sub, David Fairclough, came along and rescued things and scored the third goal. And Liverpool went through 3-2 on aggregate. So maybe that was a turning point. Yeah, I was going to touch on that because that's kind of remembered as one of the 
most memorable European matches at Anfield. Um, and it's also one of the probably one of the earliest memorable ones. I know um, that European Cup was Liverpool's and Mönchengladbach, who were going to beat in the final. That was their first ever European Cup final for both teams. Mm. Um, so obviously, I know a lot of people look back on that Etienne game as kind of a turning point for Liverpool in Europe, especially because, like you say, 1-0 down after the first leg. Keegan scores early on, 1-1. Setetian score just inside the second half to go 2-1 up. And at that point, because of away goals, you need two to win to go through. One goal is not yeah. going to be enough. So, like you say, getting equaliser midway through the second half, David Fairclough comes on, 18 minutes to go, and then 12 minutes later scores to put you through. What was it with him off the bench? Because he got the title of Super Sub. He's one of the first, probably, to get that nickname. And I know a lot of people have had it since. Yeah, um, David was a he was a good player. He was, he was underestimated as a player. He obviously got labelled super sub, and that stuck with him probably for his whole career. And therefore, people perhaps didn't appreciate that he was a good player. Um, I think in those early days, he had two things. Um, really, he, he was unknown. So people didn't really know exactly what he could and couldn't do outside of Liverpool. They didn't know him at all. So he could take people by surprise. But he had incredible pace, absolutely incredible pace. Um, and that uh, took him past players far more quickly and easily than others could. And uh, David exploited that. David exploited that. And some people would say that he... He would push and run, go past defenders. He did, because he knew he was going to get past them. Um, it was only in later years that people got to know exactly what he could do and that they could actually counteract it. But in the early days, David was quick and he was unknown. And uh, it worked very well to Liverpool's advantage in many games. Certainly, in that setting game, certainly did. So, semi-final was FC Zurich. Switzerland, which was 6-1 on aggregate, no great shakes. Like you say, quite a, a fortunate draw apart from the Setsian game. And then it was uh, Glad back in the final. Um, what do you remember about the final? Kind of build-up and being there? And Well, the, the, the build-up was just, it was, any, it was just like any other game. It wasn't threat as anything particularly special or anything like that. It was just another game that Liverpool had to go out play and win. Um, there was nothing ever built up at all in my time at Liverpool to be something special. It was just another game because they wanted to win every game. So that game was just another game. Let's go out, train before the game, play the game, win, and let's go home. Um, I do remember the fact that um, it was a warm evening. It really was. Um, Tommy Smith was playing instead of Phil Thompson, who was injured, um, which was a bit of a last-minute thing. Uh, it, it was sort of... I, I think most people believed that Liverpool would win the game, but they were always fearful that uh, Munching Gladbach had a couple of good players, especially Simonson, who was a very good player. There's a Danish lad, wasn't he? The Danish player. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the lad that scored the, the goal for Munchenglad back. 
Um, but Liverpool always felt as though that if they went out, did their thing and played as they could, then they would win the game. And uh, I, I think the, the happiest bit of the game for me was uh, Tommy Smith's header. I mean, that was just brilliant. It was, it was a great goal, a great headed goal, but it was great for him. Somebody that had been a servant of the club for as long as he had to, to score a goal like that in a European Cup final. It was, it was pretty special, pretty special. It really was. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that that's kind of the, the peak of domestic football, if you will, because it's your European Cup final um, and this kind of downplay it to nothing. Was, it, was there no nerves in the change room beforehand? Who were the kind of leaders in the dressing room? Um, well, Edmund was a big, big voice in the dressing room. Edmund really was a big voice. Um, a, a calming voice. He, re, he, he was a calming voice. Tom, Tommy Smith was probably the man in the dressing room. Uh, in the time that I was there, you, you didn't argue with Tommy. Uh, <laughs> you, you didn't get the look. Uh, he didn't get those looks that he got for nothing. Um, but he was well respected as well. He was Liverpool through and through. Was Tom. You didn't disrespect Liverpool in any way from Tommy's earshot. If you did, you knew about it. So Tommy was a big voice in the restaurant as well. But um, Tommy and Emlyn, yeah, definitely two two massive voices in the restaurant. They were. But everybody was well respected in there. They, they, all the players respected each other. Um, there was no, uh, as you would say, Billy Big Times in there. They were all Liverpool players. You weren't allowed to get too big for your boots by anybody. If you did, you got slapped down pretty hard by the rest of the squad and the team. So uh, it, it was a, a level-headed dressing room from, from start to finish. It really was. And was. That was the season, correct me if I'm wrong, where you lost the FA Cup final 2-1. Is that right? Uh, yes. Was the... What was the feeling like in that? Because that would have been the, the treble, obviously. Uh, yes, it would have been, yes. Yeah. Um, I think on the day that I think there were so many things that had gone on within the season um, that that was just one game too much for them. Uh, and I think they were... They had, a, they had a little bit of fortune with the goals that uh, did United. Um, but I think on the day they probably deserve to win. Um, but I think it was just one game too much for Liverpool, to be fair. Yeah, so just looking at your, um, your four seasons that you had at Liverpool, um, so you've got First Division champions, 1975-76, 1976-1977. Obviously, you won three charity shields in that time, 74, 76 and 77. European Cup twice in 77 and 78. UEFA Cup in 76. And the Super Cup as well in 77. Yeah. It's not bad. Which, uh, what's that, sorry? Go on. It, it, just, just looking back at it, and that, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? That much success in just four seasons. Obviously, I, I imagine the 77 is the, the biggest memory you've got, is it? Uh, for me, it is, yes. Because, well, although, you see, the 76, the UEFA Cup final in Bruges, or against Bruges, I should say, that was a, that was a tremendous thing from my point of view, because that was the first European final I'd ever been to. Um, but from a Liverpool point of view, they'd won it in 73, so it was something they'd already done before. 
So the 77, the European Cup, was the holy grail. That was what they wanted. Um, it was something that uh, they worked towards from the start of the season uh, and they achieved at the end. But that was the holy grail. That was the big thing that shadowed out to be European champions for the very first time was something that they just wanted more than anything else. Was there a realisation by yourself that maybe you needed to look somewhere else or was it the club that were maybe thinking of opportunities? I know Steve Grizovich came in. Um, yeah. Was it 78? Yeah, yeah. Um, was yeah. that kind of writing on the wall or had you already made inclinations that you were wanting to try your hand elsewhere? or? Well, I, th- I, think, I think I knew myself that I was going to move on. Um, I wasn't sure exactly when. I'd, uh, I'd been injured, I injured my knee, um, and I was having problems with the knee. And uh, there was a little bit of that that they needed cover. So Steven Grizovich was brought in. But there was also the realisation that um, I was going to move on, and therefore they needed another goalkeeper, a younger goalkeeper, to, uh, to try and challenge Ray. Um, so Steve was brought in. So, yeah, I knew, probably knew 12 months beforehand. At the start of that season of uh, 77, 78, I probably knew that I was going to be moving on. When I, or where, I had no idea, but I pretty much knew that I was going to be moving on there. Yeah. And I was happy with that as well. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't disappointed with that in any shape or So, just looking at um, your list of clubs, there's, there's one little bit that I can't quite place. You had a loan spell in America. Yeah. Was that whilst you were with Liverpool? That was whilst I was at Liverpool. That was at, uh, in the summer of 1978. Right, so that was, uh, that was at the end of Liverpool, just before Oldham, and, and that yes. was at Dallas Tornado. Yeah, I was still a Liverpool player. I went over as a Liverpool player. I came back to a Liverpool player. Uh, but I was only back at Liverpool for a matter of days before I moved on to Oldham. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So that spell. I enjoyed it. Sorry, just going going. That spell at Dallas and Dallas Tornado. Yeah. How, how did that come about? Was it someone you knew out there, or someone the club knew, or? It was a club. It was a club link. Um, Roy Evans, the reserve team manager, had played over in Dallas a few years earlier. And he kept up the, uh, the contact with the club. And over that uh, three or four seasons that he, since he played there, a number of Liverpool players had gone out there and played on loan for Dallas. Uh, and that summer that I went out, there were three other Liverpool players that were out there as well. So there were actually there was four of us out there for that summer playing for Dallas, uh, all on loan from Liverpool. Right. So, yeah, the, the, the link was the club. Was it what was it was the what was the difference in football like? Because you've got such a professional top of the domestic tree in um, Liverpool to the North American Soccer League, as it was called, the NASL. The NASL, yeah. Which it, it was totally different. If right. you try comparing the first team at Liverpool to the NASL, it, uh, there isn't a comparison. I mean, they they are worlds apart. The NASL was a lot of players on the way up and a lot of players on the way down. Um, they didn't, you didn't tend to get 
that middle ground of player um, that actually was over there for the long haul. You've got players going over on loan just to get a bit more of experience. Um, and you've got players going there at the end of the careers just to try and uh, fill the bank account up. Um, so there was a, a, a wide diversity, diversity of players over there. There was uh, quite a lot of top-class international players on the way down uh, or at the end of their international careers. So there were some good players to be able to see and play against, uh, but the standard of football was not the best. No. And so when you were coming back from, um, from America to come back to Liverpool, did you know you were coming back to something else? And Liverpool was just kind of a a temporary thing when you come back, or was the Oldham deal in the works while she was still out there? What was what was no, going? No, the Oldham deal wasn't in the works. I knew I was going back. There was nothing lined up whatsoever. I, right. I, I knew that I was going to go back and then hopefully talk to the club and try and get something sorted out. Um, so uh, that that was the plan, really. Get back over there. Get back to Liverpool. I actually finished my time early over in Dallas so I could get back to Liverpool for the beginning of August so that I could try and get a club for the start of that season. But I'd got nothing fixed up. And actually, when I got back over to, uh, to Liverpool, the first team were away. The manager and the first team were away in Germany on tour. Um, so I, uh, I was there with the rest of the Roy Evans and the rest of the reserves. Um, and that was when... Uh, a guy called Jeff Twentyman, who was the chief scout at the time, asked me whether I fancied going to Oldham because their goalkeeper had been injured the previous Saturday in the game. Uh, he'd broken his leg, unfortunately. Uh, and I said, yeah, no problem at all. He said, well, go there for a month, see how it is, and see what comes of it. So I went there the following Saturday and uh, played for Oldham in, uh, in an Anglo-Scottish Cup game. Um, but I had nothing lined up whatsoever when I came back. It all happened within two or three days of me getting back into Liverpool. But I ended up at, uh, at Oldham. Right. Because I have his... Um, so you initially on loan then at Oldham? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was... Because that was a quick thing to do. So rather than trying to agree contracts and this, that, and the other, the, the first thing you do is just go on loan. You go for a month's loan and that gives breathing space, A, for Oldham to have a look at you and make sure that you're the right person you want and B, for you to look at them. And also, um, it gives time for any necessary paperwork to be sorted out. Because you just need to sign a quick loan form and that's it. And away you go. Right. It's crazy. Obviously, you went on to make 137 appearances for Oldham. I did, yes. Uh, yeah. I had four years at Oldham and thoroughly loved my time there. Um, wouldn't change it for the world. It was great. Uh, it wasn't the most fashionable or glamorous of clubs. Um, but it was a, a good, homely club that you enjoyed playing for. Uh, and you had to have good team spirit because you were never a club that was going to uh, buy its way to the top of the league or whatever. You had to be together and work together and play together, and uh, it was very enjoyable. It was uh, it was a good time. Really yeah, you fun. got to, you got to the the final Anglo Scottish Cup. I noticed. I think that was in your first season, seventy eight, seventy nine. We did, yeah, yeah, we. Uh, I played the, the first game I played was against Bolton, uh, which was a, one in the group games, and we needed to get a draw in that game to qualify. And I think we drew nil nil. Uh, I saved a penalty in that game as well. <laughs> in, uh, in Wellington. 
although he denied it afterwards. When I met him many years later, he said, I've never missed a penalty in my life. I said, well, I've got a clip in the room that shows it with Halford anyway. We didn't argue the point. Um, yeah, we went on then to play Morton. And we beat Morton. We lost to Morton away. We lost 3-0 to Morton away. And then beat them 4-0 at home. So went on into the semi-finals where we played St. Mirren. Uh, we, I can't remember. I think we drew both games. And then we beat St. Mirren in a penalty shootout. Uh, and that put us up against Burnley in the final. And we were quite confident going into the game against Burnley. Uh, we played the home leg first and got our backsides kicked forward. Right. Uh, so it, it was literally competition over after the first leg. We did win the second leg 1-0, but I'm not sure that was just Burnley taking the foot off. Um, <laughs> so we, we lost the game 4-2, but it was the first leg that cost us dearly. Wow. Losing 4-1 at home was bitterly disappointing. But... Uh, yeah, hey ho! It was uh, it was a cup final, and that was all you can say. That's it. I mean, you've gone bury the year they, they got promoted. You won season at the club. Liverpool, yeah. you win all them trophies in four years and all them cup finals. You've gone to Oldham and had a cup final within your first year. Um, you've done you've done all right for for six seasons, so to speak, in league football. So that's it. That's the end of part one. Um, like I said, we've got the whole Barrow and Oldham part coming up in part two. Obviously not in that order. There's a little bit of Morecambe chucked in there as well. And then um, we will look at getting some other guests lined up. Obviously I've got the, um, the recordings from the a few of the FA Trophy guys that we spoke to. But the the plan isn't just to stick to, the, to these guys, but with the current pandemic that's going around it's making it hard to, to find space to speak to people um, to make room for being able to talk to them um, in, a, in inside somewhere because of the weather um, so it's just a little bit frustrating at the moment the audio quality is not great on the, the first couple of interviews um, and it's kind of unavoidable because we're done by Zoom which is why I'm keen to get to speak to people in person and then I can record them the way I want to do them and it'll be a little bit better on the old ears so that's it so Stevenage at the weekend um, league season starts hopefully first home game want to get off to a great start with three points um, and judging by the way they performed in the first two games it's just about taking chances um, take the chances and I think they've got enough on Saturday to see off Stevenage um, and hopefully that's the case so um, part two will be out hopefully within the next couple of weeks um, and that's it Alright, so I will speak to you again soon. Cheers.